pray with me? Lord, we are humbled this morning by your presence with us. Lord, you are such an amazing God and deserves to be praised. But we are so sinful, Lord, and do not deserve to praise you. And here we stand, Lord, assured by your grace. I don't know about everyone else in this room, but there's been definitely times in my life where I have definitely been held fast by you. Afraid, Lord, that I was gone and to never come back, like the prodigal son, but never returning. But yet you held me fast, Lord. Which proves your love for us. We all have these same stories, Lord, where we have gone astray, where we have turned away from you, and yet you have held us fast. And you have brought us back to your presence. You have brought us back to your throne. You have brought us back into your courts, and you welcome us as sons and daughters, and you welcome us at your table, and call us co-heirs with your son, Jesus. Lord, your grace is so Reckless. Why would you save us, of all people? Lord, we thank you, Lord, that the, the curtain that separated us from you has been cut in two, and has been split, that we can now walk into your presence, Lord, with freedom and joy and gladness. And Lord, I pray that as we come into your presence, as here we are, Lord, as your broken people that you have saved and redeemed, we're here, we're, we're here to worship, we're here to learn from your word. But also, Lord, we're here to be convicted of our sins. We are here, Lord, to be encouraged through your word. Lord, we're here that we may experience your grace. And Lord, we ask that you would change us. Lord, that you would give us the love for your word that we should have. That you would illuminate our minds by your spirit to understand you more and lead us to repentance and lead us to comprehend your amazing love. Heal those who are here that are sick. Lord, we would not be able to petition you to do these things if it wasn't for Christ and his grace. Lord, we ask you to heal those here that are sick, friends and family members who are sick. Lord, we pray that you would encourage those who are struggling with fear and anxiety and discontentment. Lord, we pray that you would give hope to those who have no hope. We pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, who have or will gather together to worship you. We pray for the preaching of your word. May your word convict those who are far from you and bring them into your presence to the good news of Christ. We pray for missionaries around the world who have, you have sent to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. We pray for those who are here in this room who you are preparing to send out to be missionaries or church planters or pastors or church leaders. Prepare them for your work. Send them out. Give them success. May everyone here abide in your love, and may their lives bear fruit. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, we are going to do uh, a little bit, uh, some different things this morning, since uh, we are done with our New City Catechism. And so we're going to do our children's memory verse, and then we're going to do the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so our children's memory verse is from Matthew, oh, John 14, 6. This was last week. It was okay. We can do this one. John said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the Apostles' Creed, 
which I don't know if I need to read. If you have your uh, digital hymnal, you can pull that up and we can read that together. That is a really weird noise. So if you go to EvansvilleChurch.com, maybe we did that earlier when we had some little technological difficulties this morning with the TV. Uh, if you move down the screen, you'll see the Apostles' Creed. And I'm going to read that. If you would read with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. For there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And our passage today is from Luke Chapter 5, starting in verse 17, to verse 26. We have the words on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but most likely you have something with your phones or your iPads. But for those who brought physical Bibles, salute you, salute you. It's really helpful to read from the actual word and not be so reliant on our illuminated machines and devices. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 5 of Luke. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. And when he saw their face, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 22. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your heart? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up that, he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. Verse 26. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is God's word for his people. Let me go back to my notes. So the greater work of Christ, that is a picture of the council of 
19, when they, the church came together to discuss uh, a confession, um, a creed, something to, uh, as a church to understand and put to language, the understanding of the Trinity, to understand who is Christ and, and, and talking about his, his nature. And so this was in uh, AD 300. They came together. And all the, the leaders of the church throughout the, the Christendom at that time in, in the 4th century came together to, to discuss again uh, the, the, most of the nature of Christ. Because at that time there was an issue with a, a belief from a guy named Arius. And Arius believed that he was an influential bishop in uh, 318. Asserted that the Word who took on flesh in Jesus Christ was a lesser God that had a different nature than God the Father. Jesus was a created being by God, and Arius was simply taking the Christian notions of Jesus Christ, infusing them with his pagan upbringing. Being Roman, being of uh, being someone who grew up as a Roman, he kind of fused his understanding of Christ in with his pagan upbringing. So Jesus was a lesser God than the ultimate creator God. And Jesus was a divine hero, simply similar to Hercules, or maybe more relevant to us, Thor. Hmm. A, a kind of a, a God uh, figure, a demigod, someone like Thor, who is, I think he's the god of thunder, right? Not greater than his father Odin, but just a lesser God. It's kind of what... Arius was doing, he was kind of saying, Jesus is God, he's divine, but he's not as divine as God the Father, he's a lesser God, similar to Hercules or Thor. So in 320, uh, uh, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria condemned Arius' views as unbiblical. And a battle begun over the nature of Christ Jesus, riots erupted on the streets of Alexandria. Think of the riots during President the presidential campaign with Donald Trump, you had like anti-Trumps and pro-Trumps and they were arguing and burning stuff and, and yelling at each other. Your mommy, yeah, you know, mama jokes or whatever, they were arguing against each other. And they were just yelling at each other, yelling at each other. And there was this riot that ended up on the streets. We watched it on CNN or we read it in the newspaper or we saw videos on Facebook. Similar action, you see these riots going on and this opposition to Arius. His views. Arius was very popular. His teaching was very popular. People liked his teaching. People, he was very flamboyant, and people liked his teaching. It was influential. And so there was this, these riots. There was this division in the church. So Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire, you know, the Roman Empire now was the official religion, was Christianity at this point. And so he calls this council, brings all the bishops across Christendom to come uh, to uh, the area around Turkey to come and meet and to talk. So around 300, bis 300 bishops across Christendom, across the church, journey to argue the issue before the emperor himself. What a difference, right? Just a few years before, man, they're getting persecuted by the emperor. And now the emperor is bringing them in and say, hey, come before me. Come talk to me. Let's deal with this issue that is affecting the church. Many had... Remember, suffering at the hands of the Romans, but now they come together on behalf of the emperor to reconcile division in the church. And Arius and his minions were clearly in the minority. Thank God. Their views on the nature of Christ were rejected. The council set out to define the nature of Christ from the words of Scripture as true God, of true God, begotten, not man, of one substance with the Father. That was the 
the phrase that they placed in the Nicene Creed, talking about Jesus. He was begotten but not made of one substance with the Father. The expression homoousian, one substance, was introduced by the Bishop of Cordova. And the results of their discussions was the Nicene Creed, which I just want to read a part of it here. This is the Nicene Creed in 325 uh, A.D. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from light, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance, same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to the, the heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in the one holy Catholic universal apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That's what they argued over. This is what they settled on. This is what they agreed upon. The result created this Nineteen, the church defined the nature of Christ. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there shall I be. And whatever you agree upon, that shall be true in heaven. And they came to agree on the nature of Christ. Understanding the Bible, understanding scripture, they believe that Jesus was the son of God. That he was just the same, created the same, begotten, not made of the same substance, same essence of God the Father. All but two bishops present in the council signed the creed. So, and those two guys who didn't sign it were exiled. Not sure where, but they were exiled to some island of some sort. Later, Athanasius, who was a was the bishop of Alexandria once once Alexander died, continued to fight for the biblical definition of the nature of Christ. Some in the church continued to teach the Arian view of Christ. They argued for homoousius, meaning similar su substance rather than homoousian, same substance. And Jesus was like God, but he was not God. That one eye, the one iota was the difference between these two groups. And one eye changed the whole understanding of who Jesus was. Was he like the Father or was he the same as the Father? There's a story about a, about a, a woman who toured Europe and who, who cabled her husband. I have found a wonderful bracelet, price $75,000. May I buy it? And the husband cabled back, no, comma, price too high. The cable operator in transmitting the message missed the comma and the signal, and the woman received a message that read, no price too high. And she bought the bracelet. That one comma changed the entire sentence. That one eye changes the whole understanding of who Christ is. The argument was over one iota. Yet that one iota changes the Christian faith completely. Jesus is not like God. He is God. Jesus is fully God. Or better stated, he is truly God. Dan Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code, argues a different history from 325 at 19. Brown writes that Constantine called this council so he could introduce a new divine Jesus on par with the Father. However, we all learn from this 
story in Luke 5, 17 through 26, that Jesus identifies his true nature quite clearly, doesn't he? He doesn't need a counsel to tell him that he's God. He declares that he's God. And Luke was written over 200 years before the Council of Nicene. The nature of Christ is a significant topic to get right for the church. If the Arians had succeeded at Nicene with their iota, Christianity would have been no different than the pagan and Gnostic religions of the empire. It would have been no different. The Christian faith would have had two gods, and a Jesus who who was neither God nor man, and Jesus would not have had the power to forgive sins. This understanding, this history helps us understand what we see in this story today. Just a little little background from what uh, Robert preached on last week. The man, uh, verses uh, 12 through 16 of chapter 5, of Luke, a man with leprosy who was healed by Christ. He was unclean. Uh, he used the passage Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The bigger story is not just the leprosy of the skin, and, and Robert points this out really well. It's not just the leprosy of the <coughs> unclean heart that's at issue here. Spiritual deadness is the real problem in these healing narratives. It's not just the the physical illnesses, it's the unclean spiritual deadness that is an issue. And we see that in the story where Jesus is finally talking about the forgiveness of sins and not just healing the individual. And as we've been we've been referring to this passage over and over and over and over again, uh, Luke 4.18, this is basically the key of understanding all of these miracle stories and this being the last one and this kind of couplet and this this kind of section of Luke. But Luke 4.18 helps us understand the whole point of these narrative stories that we've been preaching on. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That passage helps us understand these entire stories. Spiritual poverty, slavery to sin, spiritual blindness, spiritual oppression. So we come today to the last of the healing miracles which started in Luke 4.31 and we get a better understanding of the greater work of Christ. We've been repeating this statement over and over. Robert mentioned it too. We've been saying this over and over again. Jesus was not sent by his father to take on flesh, catch some fish for some fish. Or to do some exorcisms. Or to heal some dude with leprosy. That's not why he was sent. This is the greater work at play here. The greater work at play is the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is not some bloke who gave some good speeches and did some magic tricks, which is how many of us think of him. Many of the world thinks of him as just a guy who spoke spoke a few nice speeches and then did some cool magic tricks, but that's all that he really did. The historical Jesus, the human being to walk the roads of the ancient Israel, gather disciples, was executed by the Romans, is often contrasted with the Christ, Christ of faith, the super historical figure whose presence in the world enlightens and nourishes Christian communities. There's this, this struggle in the world today and this culture that trying to define who Jesus is and trying to, well, he's not really God. Like, he, he's just a guy who taught and did some cool miracles, and he was a Jew, and he walked amongst, he had some disciples, he was just a rabbi. And there's just this understanding of, well, we have to understand who Jesus is. Clear him from the, the New Testament and the supernaturalism. Cut all that out. And who is the real historical Jesus? And the real historical Jesus is the one that's painted in the scriptures. The one who says, I forgive sins. I am God. If you want to understand who Jesus is, go to the scriptures. Go to the gospels. 
So we see that many, including the Pharisees that were introduced to Luke, to, to by Luke in the story today, do not understand Jesus Christ. They don't understand him. He speaks with authority. People are wowed by his signs or his miraculous tricks. They want to hear from him. They want to be healed by him. But is that all that he is? Is that all that he came to do? What makes him any different than Aristotle or Socrates or Martin Luther King Jr. who spoke a lot of great speeches? What makes him any different than a miracle worker or an illusionist or a trickster? What makes them any different than those people? They were healers throughout history. There are people who spoke great speeches. What makes Jesus any different than them? Why is he significant? So the first set of verses, 17 through 20, we, we have this understanding of seeking him, the seek him imperative, the, the command to seek Christ. We see in the beginning here that he was teaching, as he's done a lot in these passages. He's, he's in a city and he's teaching or uh, he's on the Sabbath day, and he's teaching in the synagogue. So he's teaching, and he's, Mark tells us in one, uh, Mark tells us that he was, Mark 2, that he was teaching in a house, that there was a crowd that had gathered in a house in Capernaum. And what was he teaching? Mark 1, 14 through 15 says, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. Time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. This is what he's been preaching. The theme of God's favor has been announced. It's the year of the Lord's favor, and it has come through Christ. His favor is here. We think about the often the Old Testament, when God's favor was experienced. We think of Exodus 15, 13 through 18, when Moses talks about God's salvation for Israel and how he has rescued them from Egypt and from slavery. The Lord's favor is very good. And Moses understands this, and he talks about this in Exodus 15. But what is the Lord's favor? Is it simply a few people getting healed of their diseases? Is that all that it is? Aren't these people just going to become, aren't they just going to go back to their lives of poverty and hunger? What about the guy with leprosy? Where is he going back to? Is he going back to riches? No. Is he going back to some great job? No. He still has, he's probably still poor. He still has to find food to eat. What is the bigger point? Hence why many of the people who went out to hear from Jesus believed that maybe a new leader had emerged that could rise up uh, for the people to overthrow the Romans like the Maccabeans did with the Greeks. Maybe he's one of those figures. Maybe he's going to cause an uprising. Maybe, 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 we, uh, maybe the Romans are going to go away and we can reestablish our nation and our way of life. Even the, the, the Matthias was a, royal, a rural priest who sparked a revolution. Jesus is a rural. I mean, he from Nazareth. He's speaking amongst rural people, not in the urban section. So maybe he's similar. Maybe he's come to, to cause an uprising. But that's not why Jesus came. Why did he read from Luke, when we read from Isaiah 61, uh, Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What is the good news? Is it revolution? Is it uprising? He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, is that liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So people are excited. They think revolution's coming. Things are going to change. The poor will shall be rich again. The, the, there'll be a leveling of society. People from every village were coming. And they're going to go hear the new political news. They're going to go, like Bernie Sanders, they're going to go listen to this new news, this good news of political revolution. So they go, and he's doing this cool stuff. He's healing people. 
Even the Pharisees and the teachers of the Jewish law, maybe scribes, are curious. You can imagine them showing up with a sense of superiority, right? I mean, the Pharisees are like walking in, like all pumped. We went to the zoo this week. Think of a peacock, right? He's just spreading his wings and showing who's boss. He walks in and like, you know, look at me. Look at us. The religious leaders have come to hear this man speak. This curiosity. They're strutting, maybe, you know, in their robes of some sort. And the power of the Lord, it says, was with him to heal. And so Jesus is speaking, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. We see this in 4.18 and 4.14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the power of God was with him to heal. What an interesting phrase. Why Put that in there. Why do we need to know that? Not to get too deep in this, because then it'll just cause more confusion, and you'll go, I don't know what Matt talked about. He talked about some nature of Jesus thing, and I don't really get it. Well, it's really difficult to understand the nature of Christ. Fully God, fully man. There's no other man in history that was fully God. How do you understand that concept? The church has been struggling with understanding that concept, that mystery. We see them doing it here in Nicene. Human nature, the divine nature. Jesus possessed a human body like you, but Jesus possessed a human mind like you. Jesus was human in every way. Don't think that, oh, that he was partly human, like he was partially human. Like, he was human, but not human. Like, that doesn't make sense. He was human in every way. Yet, at the same time, he retained all the resources and characteristics of God. Humans were not created, essentially, by God with the power to heal diseases. I don't think. I don't think Adam was created to heal diseases. I don't think Eve was created to be able to calm the sea. But yet, Christ did that. Humans were not created essentially by by God with the power to know all things. We can understand the point in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. How does he increase in wisdom and stature? He's God. How does Jesus increase? Because he's human as well. So Jesus experienced the limitations of the human body and life and mind. He was hungry. He slept. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. But at the same time, he was empowered by the resources of omnipotence and possessing the full scope of omniscience and having distinctly divine conscience and present and power and knowledge throughout the entirety of creation. He has these two natures, these two minds. Jesus spoke here as a human would speak with the same mental and intellect and emotions of volitional resources you all have. And as he spoke, he possessed also the power of God. On one of those days, he was teaching. Just teaching. But at the same time, the divine power of God, which Christ possessed, was with him to heal. His eyes didn't turn white like Thor. Like, all right, Jesus is getting to the power section, right? His eyes turn white. He starts, lightning bolts start coming out of his things. So, all right, he's ready to heal. We don't get that, do we? Jesus walked and talked. He looked human, but at the same time, he was fully God. He possessed the power of God as he taught and walked in a normal human way. And some men were seeking to bring a man who was paralyzed on a mat to Jesus. They were seeking him out. And their friend was paralyzed. And maybe he was paralyzed since birth. And so they bring him to Jesus. They hear Jesus teaching. They bring their paralyzed friend on his mat. And they believe Jesus can heal their friend. They could not find a way through the crowd. There's so many people in the doorway of the house. They can't get to Jesus. They have this friend on a mat. There's maybe four of them, and they're trying to get there. And then they find a way up to the roof. Maybe there are stairways up to the roof. And they get to the top of the roof, and they are dedicated to this. 
Mark says that actually, like, kind of dug a hole. And we see in Luke, it was tiles. And they drop him down. They remove a section of the roof. And kind of like Ethan Hawke hunt saw. Like, they went down from the roof, like, you know, like, on a zip cord or something. They, they bring him down and they place him before Jesus. I mean, talk about a will to attitude. Talk about an entrance. They knew that Jesus, they knew that they just needed to get their friend to Jesus and he would heal them. When they saw, he saw their faith, they trusted in Christ. Their trust in Christ. Uh, their belief that Christ can save their friend was, was shown to Jesus. And Jesus says, by your faith. Says, man or friend, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins have been forgiven, he says. Not partially forgiven, not will be forgiven, not if you have a good boy. If you've been a good boy all year, maybe you'll get a Christmas present, forgiveness, but that you are forgiven. They sought Christ. The result of their faith was forgiveness. The result of their trust in Christ was forgiveness, and they were forgiven completely. We think about happiness and seeking happiness. These men sought Jesus for healing. They sought Jesus for his power. And, and, and they went through a lot of different ways to get him to Jesus. And a lot of people are seeking happiness in so many different ways. Situation change, people change, relationship change. There's a, an issue of gospel of self-fulfillment that my happiness is my own duty. I must... Find my happiness. And self-denial is the only sin. That if I don't find myself, and I don't seek happiness through myself, that is an actual sin because I'm denying what I want and what I desire. Whatever that is and whoever it hurts. Human flourishing is the result of obeying our desires. <clears throat> Travis Wack wrote, The narrative arc of your life is finding your personal route to happiness by following your heart, expressing your true self, and then fighting with whoever would oppose you, your society, your family, your past, or your church. This is one of the dominant narratives of our time. It shows up in movies and music, and increasingly on the platforms of popular preachers and teachers, both male and female, seeking happiness through ourselves. When we seek Christ and live our lives according to His word and life, we find our true self. You will not find your true self through your own self-fulfillment. Through defining your happiness through your own desires. As these men showed, it's only through Christ do you find your true self. And experience forgiveness and love. The second set of verses is knowing him. So seek him, know him, verse 21 through 24. And so the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the scribes, they hear Jesus say, friend, your sins are forgiven. And they argue amongst one another, who is this who speaks blasphemies? They weren't happy with Jesus' words. I, uh, they, they, they were triggered. These guys were provoked by what Jesus said. It's kind of a foreshadow of events to come when Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, where he's eventually killed by these individuals, by this society of religious people and religious experts who hated Jesus and what he came to do and they were provoked and they said who can forgive sins but God alone? They bring up a good point. Who can forgive sins but God alone? God is the only one who can forgive sins. He's the giver of the law. He's the creator of all things. What does David say in Psalm 51 4? Against you, you only have I sinned. Talking to God. And done what is evil in your sight. 
Can Jesus forgive this man's sins? He's not God. How can he forgive man's sins? Jesus says your sins are forgiven. He's saying this man has sinned against me. However, I forgive you. Jesus is saying that he is God and these leaders of the Jewish faith are in the presence of God himself. Which is easier to say, he says, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, rise, pick up your mat, and go into your house. I mean, Jesus then heals the man, verifying that he can forgive sins. He says, what's easier? Dumb, rise and walk, or to forgive your sins? I've already forgiven the sins, but just to show you that I have the power to forgive sins and to do whatever I want, rise, take up your mat, and go. Verifying that he is God and he can't forgive sins. I mean, he's saying to these Jewish authorities, I am God. And you're in the presence of God. The God that you reverence, the God that you won't even speak his name, you're in the presence of God right now. And you don't even know it. He's going to show them what authority he has. And I forgive sins and heal the paralyzed. Jesus did not come simply to heal people. He came to bring salvation of sins. And people want to see signs. And they want their sicknesses cured. Or they wanted political liberation from him. They were before God himself. And they were ignorant of him. They didn't realize that they weren't standing just in front of a religious leader or a political hero. They were in front of God himself. And if they knew who he was, they would have had a similar reaction as Peter. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. They would have had a reaction as the man healed of leprosy. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. But that's not what they question about. There's a story, this is kind of funny, there's this, I was online and reading about, there's a guy who went skiing with another guy, and they were chatting. Uh, as a, there's a, If you've been, like, especially a panel, like, the lift goes really slow, right? So you've got a lot of time to discuss issues of the day. And uh, so this guy was, was skiing, and his name is Mike, and he talks to this guy next to him he doesn't know, and he says, he goes, what do you do for a living? And the guy says, oh, um, I'm an actor. And he says, oh, really? Anything I've seen you in? Like, have we've been in any big movies? And the guy says for a minute, he thinks for a minute, looks at him and says, have you ever seen Star Wars? And the guy says, yeah, yeah, I have. And the guy says, well, I'm um, Luke Skywalker. Didn't even know it. You know, he was sitting next to Mark Hamill the whole time. He was having this conversation up a lift, didn't even know. He's even seen Star Wars and didn't even recognize Mark Hamill the whole time. There's this idea that the Pharisees and scribes were standing in front of God himself and didn't even know it. Weren't even aware of it, ignorant of it. They missed him. They were unaware of his identity and his purpose. And he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and they missed it. If you truly know God, you would trust him. If you would believe he could save you and give you life like these men and their paralyzed friend in the story, you would believe that he could do anything. He could heal you. He could save you. He could forgive you. The last set of verses is 25 through 26. So seek him, know him, worship him. And immediately it says, after he got up from before them and rose from laying, he went into the house glorifying God. This guy has just been healed. Uh, it doesn't tell us, but maybe he was paralyzed from his birth. The guy maybe never walked before. Who knows? <clears throat> Proving that Jesus has the power to heal the physical and the spiritual. The response to God's grace is worship. I mean, he's, he worships. I mean, think about it. Like, if you've never walked your whole life, right? And then this guy heals you, and you can walk. How would you react to that? 
We've seen stories of people who have been paralyzed and they finally, there's a lot of joy. This guy's just been healed by Christ. I'm betting he's running home. He's never ran. He's running as fast as he could. Full of happiness and joy. What joy he must have experienced in that moment. Happiness because Christ has saved him. An amazement sees them all and they glorify God. We're filled, filled with fear saying we have seen incredible things. People were amazed. They were glorifying God. This man who was paralyzed is now well and good. He picked up his mat and he walked. He walked home. He, people were amazed. They were seized with amazement. They glorified God. They worshipped him. And they have seen incredible things. And they were response in, they responded in worship. They were amazed. You know, there was a, when I was at Together for the Gospel a few weeks ago, there was a song that they sang called Power of the Cross. And it was like the first time in a while that I think I got teary-eyed from music, worship music. Like sometimes I do here, but there was just a, maybe you've shared this moment where you're just like, there's something going on in me that I'm, I'm resonating what is being, what is being saying. Like I'm starting to realize that this isn't just a song. This is like a, this is a testimony. It's a personal testimony. And if you ever heard the song, there's some really great words, but it says um, um, right here, I'm trying to get where, where I'm at. It says, finish the victory cry. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. For through your suffering, I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. The power. And I was just sitting there. I'm like, wow. Like, I have been forgiven by this man's sacrifice on the cross. The God-man himself laid his life down so that I may have life. And once you realize that, once you've contemplated all the mysteries of that and just let it engulf you, it leads you to tears. I mean, you're just weeping. And you think about your children who are not saved and want them to be saved. You think of friends who are not saved and you want them to be saved. You think of family members who are not saved who you want them to be saved. And you cry because they're not saved. Because they can't experience what you're experiencing. They can't understand what you've understood. And it makes you sad. It makes you grieve because they don't have Christ. And they should want Christ. Because mm. you know what? Honestly, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter Calvinism, Arminianism, heterosexual, homosexual, white, black, pro-life, pro-choice, gun rights, gun control. None of that stuff really matters. All that matters is that he bore the awesome weight of my sin and your sin, and you stand forgiven. That's all that matters. None of these other things matter. Because when you think about Christ and what he did on the cross, it's the power of the cross and the power of God, and all those other things become small and insignificant in comparison to Christ. You have to think about the context of your life. You've dealt with pain and sin of different kinds. And Christ says to you, friend, your sins are forgiven. Christ says to you, rise and go. You're forgiven. You're free. You're full of, be full of gladness. Start living. Sin is believed to be the route to freedom and life, sexual revolution, liberation, partying. Sin is slavery. There is reasons we hate slavery. And sin is slavery. Faith in Christ leads to life. Therefore, without Christ, your life is not worth living. Death is your future and your fate. Why would you choose death over life? Why? Why would you choose some fake route to freedom and life when Christ offers you life? 
Some of you may know Christ, but do not worship him. You do not stand in all of him. You're no better than Judas, who knew him and betrayed him. You're no better than the demons who called him Lord, but did not worship him. Some of you need to seek him in faith to heal you and cleanse you of the sins in your life and seek him and he will forgive you. Some of you need to know him through reflection of his nature in scripture, understanding that he loves you so much that he laid his life down for the salvation of all who believe and trust in his name. And some of you need to worship him by contemplating his amazing grace on your life. Worship is not a song. FYI, not a song. Worship is a complete surrender to the God of all glory. He chose to save you so that you can belong with him for eternity. That's what worship is. It's not music. It's an understanding that God is far greater than you but loves you. Some of you need to ask yourself the question, since God was willing to save me at such a high cost, the death of his own son, what does, it, what does he want to accomplish through me? He saved you for a reason, not just to come to church. What does he want to accomplish through my redeemed life? You are called to rise and pick up your mat and go. To serve, to teach, to give, to proclaim, to love, to encourage, to bless, to counsel, to disciple, to administrate, to start, and to help. Go. Rise. Serve. In conclusion, when, I mean, if you've ever seen Good Will Hunting, you should see Good Will Hunting. It's got cussing in it, I know, but it's such a great movie. Um... Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are great in it. Robert Williams is great in it. They're the great lines of how about them apples comes from that movie, right? Uh, guy, 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 uh, the other quote is, gotta go see about a girl. Like, that's a great quote from that movie. But it's the scene at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, that is so powerful. When Sean, who's played by Robert Williams, he's like the counselor, finally breaks Will, who's a kind of a troubled kid. But he's a genius, played by Matt Damon. And he's summarizing Will's abusive past. Sean tells him repeatedly, it's not your fault. Right? The first time you watch that movie, you're like, it gets, he keeps on saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it. But the last ninth time, you're just like bawling, crying. Like, it's not your fault, Matt. Like, it's not your fault, Will. And you're just kind of in the movie. Like, you're just taken over by the story. And if you have a troubled past, you probably even cry even more because you understand, like, there's a lot of things that happened to me that I didn't do. Like some people have done to me. It's not my fault. Sometimes I think we need to be told something. That if you feel disconnected, God loves you. If you feel discontent, God loves you. If you feel unhappy, God loves you. If you feel stressed, God loves you. If you feel broken, God loves you. If you feel sad and you're grieving and mourning, God loves you. If you feel confused, unsure about the future, God loves you. If you feel troubled, God loves you. If you feel afraid, God loves you. If you feel tired and overwhelmed, God loves you. If you feel weak, God loves you. If you feel mad and angry, pissed off, God loves you. If you feel guilty, God loves you. If you feel ashamed of what you've done or who you are, God loves you. The only thing I can tell you is to seek him, know him, and worship him. Mm-hmm. If you do that, you have the choice of belief in grace or rejection and condemnation. You must believe me. Please believe me. I know I'm not the smartest person in the world. I know I'm not the handsomest person in the world, but believe me on this. 
Believe me. I'm not lying to you. I'm not deceiving you. Seek him and be forgiven. Like, believe me. It will change you. Believe me. Thank you.